0: Okay, let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Luke chapter 9. We will, Lord willing, be finishing chapter 9 today and moving on to chapter 10 next week. And we'll be taking on a very large chunk of Scripture today. And so uh, the section today will be verses 51 through 62. Again, a large chunk of Scripture. And if you have your handout, you'll see that pretty much the first half of the page is all Scripture. (laughs) So we have a, a lot to cover. And so I don't really anticipate that I'll be able to cover every nuance of every verse of the text. I won't be able to really dig in to the, the major nuances. Again, that is, uh, that's what Wednesday nights are for, Thursday nights. So another encouragement, come, come Wednesdays, be encouraged by the Word of God as people discuss the, the sermon, uh, encourage one another, fellowship with one another. So if you can make it Wednesdays, come and discuss these these nuances of how we can apply these things to our everyday lives. It's important. But my aim today is really to continue to draw out what I believe the main theme of this chapter is, what the main theme of the book of Luke is, namely what Luke wants Theophilus to know. Remember all the way back to chapter one, this book was written to a man named Theophilus, And he wanted him to know and understand and hold on to a truth that would be rooted deeply in him, securing him and making him safe in the truth. So what is the main theme of the text? The thing that Jesus is demonstrating and teaching his disciples, that to be like Jesus Christ is what it means to be a disciple. A disciple is to be like Jesus Christ. To be like Jesus means to adopt His heart, his desires, as your very own. And so the challenge is is that if you don't understand the heart of Jesus, if you don't understand the motives of Jesus Christ, you don't understand the mind, the heart, the will, the desires of your Lord and Savior, then you will miss what it means to be his disciple, which is really the main point of today's message. The main point of the message today is that if you miss the heart of Jesus, Or to miss the heart of Jesus is to miss what it means to be his disciple. If we remember from last week, Jesus was giving his disciples, namely the 12, a lesson in discipleship, or if you remember, a lesson in greatness and what true greatness really is, to which they were to learn that the way to true greatness is by following Christ in in his humility. Jesus is humble, he was a servant, he is a servant. He's impartial to whom he serves. We're to follow him in his love for the lowly. We're to follow Jesus in his love for the disenfranchised, the child, and the childlike. The call to discipleship, if you remember, was not a call to be envied by the world. It was not a call to be envied by the world, but to be the least of all, and therefore a servant of all. Which for me just kind of added to what we've already learned about what it means to die to self. When we think about dying to self and picking up the cross. It kind of adds to that definition. Like the fact that continual and daily cross bearing was a really a daily humbling of myself before the worth of Jesus. It was a daily humbling of myself before the worth of Jesus so that I might see myself as I truly am. Lowly, needy, dependent, but also very loved. Very, very loved. And so are you. And so are you. Before the cross, you are, should see your worth. Low, needy, dependent, but also very loved. Very loved. And it's, it's in that truth. It's in that truth that we seek not our own glory, but his. We love not ourselves, but others. And this is the lesson. This is the lesson. It is to be like Christ, is to be humble, and therefore serve as he has served. And to receive one such person, or one such humble person, or to be one such humble person, is to receive Christ. And to receive Christ is to receive God himself. That was the lesson from last week. And of course, one of our beloved disciples... Right? Each of whom are early in their sanctification. So we try not to give them too hard of a time. Because we, we would be no different. But one in particular is showing that he didn't really quite get it. Right? He's, not, he's not quite understanding what Jesus is saying. And we didn't really get to cover these two verses last week. But in 49 through 50, it says that John answered Jesus. So Jesus just gave his lesson about receiving a child and being the least of all. And here's, here's John's response Really, a classic case of selective hearing. Okay? Classic case of selective hearing. He says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. So, in one felt swoop, John became, I am the great, uh, came from I am the greatest to now we are the greatest. Right? He went from singularity, singular pride to now group pride. Look, Jesus, look. There's someone that is doing what only we should be able to do. This select inner circle of people. Only we should be able to really exercise demons and and work that power. He doesn't follow along with us, so he has not received us. Just like you said, he hasn't received us. Should he not first follow with us and be a part of this like in crowd first before he can start doing signs and wonders and and, and seeking after the kingdom and, and going after the works of the devil? Shouldn't he be in our inner circle first? That was the heart, group pride. So they missed it, right? John missed it. And Jesus tells them that anyone who is not against you is for you. Anyone, therefore, who is for the kingdom, Jesus is saying, is for me. Anyone who is about the kingdom is about what I'm about. And therefore, he's a disciple. Therefore, he's with us. And so we're starting to get it now. We're starting to see what Luke is doing over these last few chapters. We're starting to see what a disciple really is. And that's the point. All right, that's the point. A disciple is somebody who hears God's word and does it. A disciple is a self-denier. A disciple is a cross-carrier. A disciple is humble, lowly, servant-hearted. And this week, this week we will see that a disciple Of Jesus Christ is one who is resolute, focused, and determined. A disciple of Jesus Christ is someone who is resolute, focused, dialed in, and determined. Of course, now this was a very long introduction, I understand, but I I hope that we're starting to see, and hopefully, hopefully we will see that by the end of this very long book, we will see what Jesus demands of his disciples. What does Jesus demand of you should you call yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ? What does he demand of those who say, I will follow you, Jesus? I will follow you. Again, look inward. Look to see what God has called you to in your life if you will call yourself a disciple. It's right here in his word. You don't have to go far to find it. It may not be easy to hear, it may be hard to hear, it may require some things to do, us to do things that we probably don't want to do, that our flesh doesn't want to do, but it's the truth. And so let's pray as we go to God's word again this morning, let's pray that God would stir up our hearts to desire, have a desire to have a heart like his. Isn't that what it means to be a disciple? It's, I, I want to have your heart, Jesus. I want your heart. I want to see the world the way you see it. So let's pray, because the only way that's ever going to happen is going to start with prayer. So as I'm praying, pray with me that God would do that in you and in me and in this body. Father, we desire to follow you. We as a body, we desire to follow you and to be like you. And in that, Lord, we desire to worship you as, we, as you have called us to. This is why we're here this morning, Lord, to worship. We're here to worship. We're here to praise. We're here to give you honor and glory. We're just saying, oh God, that you are worthy of praise and honor and glory forever, God. And this is, this is it. This is where our hearts become that kind of person that desires to give you that praise. When your word takes root. So let your word take root in our hearts, oh God. We seek to be moved, God, by your heart. We seek to understand your mind and your heart. And let it be a a thing that changes us. That moves us. That conforms us, Lord. That's what it means. To be conformed into your image. to, To share your mind and heart. To be like you. That is our desire, God. We ask that you would do that and do it in a big way even this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we get into the text. We we'll start in verse 51. Chapter 9, verse 51 says, When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. Now pause here just for a second. If you're reading in the ESV, this next section is not in your Bible. It's in a bracket. If you have the NASB, it's in a bracket in your Bible. Now I'll, I'll discuss kind of what that means once we get there, okay? But Jesus' response is this: He said, "You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them." End bracket. And they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, follow me. but he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one after putting, a, putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. So being a disciple, being a disciple of Jesus Christ is so much more than just learning what a teacher has to say. It's so much more than just learning about what Jesus said and memorizing it and keeping that knowledge in your head. It is not about knowledge. No, it's learning how to think the way the teacher thinks. Discipleship is learning how to feel the way the teacher feels. It's learning to see the world the way the teacher sees the world and therefore learning how to live the way the teacher lived. I think we have a wrong view of discipleship. We take the word disciple to mean learner, and that's all we do learn. It becomes about knowledge, understanding, mental exercises. That's not the call here, though. It's not what they would have considered a disciple. And in fact, in these passages, in these passages and in these last few encounters that we just read, some of these possible, like, would be disciples, with them and with the passage right before that, we get a real and authentic look into the heart of Jesus. Again, how he feels, what he thinks about, what he's focused on. One of the things I mentioned in, the, in the, again, the very first message when we started this book is that we wanted to tackle the gospel account because we want to really know Jesus. We want to really know Jesus, his mind, his heart, as, as it's expressed within the gospel accounts. We want to know him, his heart, his passions. And why? Because we love Jesus. Jesus. And we want to be like him. Isn't that what it's like to love someone and look up to someone? When you love somebody and look up to somebody, isn't the desire to be like that person? Absolutely. That is what it is to be a disciple. It is to be like Jesus. To know your calling. To know your calling and what it all would entail. and, And most importantly, what it will cost. What it will cost. What is the cost of being like Jesus? What is the cost of thinking like Jesus? Loving like Jesus? What is Jesus all about? And therefore, what should we be all about? These are the questions. So let us look to Jesus' example. Verse 51, it says this. It says, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. He was determined to go to Jerusalem. This verse now, this verse, this is a very big transitional phrase. This is a big transitional shift in the book of Luke and in the ministry of Jesus. Okay, again, not just in this chapter, but in the, in the whole book. Because if you see, up until this point, we have seen Jesus kind of in his ministry demonstrating who has come. Demonstrating who has come, and he's authenticating who has come through miracles, signs, and wonders. And he's got some teachings kind of sprinkled in. But we're about to see a very big shift. We're about to see a very big shift. Jesus is now moving away from miracle and validation ministry and from announcement ministry and moving towards his teaching, preparation, and departure. starting to move away from those things and moving into teaching, preparing his disciples, and his departure. You'll notice if you just kind of flip through the rest of the book, uh, through the rest of the book of Luke, Uh, There's a huge focus on teaching. There's parable after parable after parable after parable. And he's preparing his disciples. He's preparing them to do the work that he has been doing after he's gone. He's giving, again, more parables, constant reminders of where he's going, namely Jerusalem. And then then there's a few healings sprinkled in. So it's kind of flipped. The ministry has flipped. So this is a big, big transitional phrase in the ministry of Jesus. And so Jesus knows that the days are approaching. He knows the days that are approaching, meaning he knows that the time is being fulfilled and the very act that was set before him in eternity past, again, not as an afterthought. This was not an afterthought, but it was the original plan of God before the world began, and it is now coming to fruition it is now approaching. It was time for Jesus, as it says here, it was time for him to head to his ascension. Time to head to his ascension. And now, this word ascension basically means it was time for him to take his seat next to the Father. It was time for glory, it was time for the honor and praise. It was time for the passage of Daniel 7 to come to fruition. For the Son of Man to approach the Ancient of Days. It was time for that. And so in light of that joy, hear me on this. In light of the joy set before him, in light of the glory, in light of the glory that is set before Jesus that he so longs to get back to. He longs to return to the glory that was, that was his before the world began. In that joy, it says, he was determined To go to Jerusalem. He did not cling to this world. But he looked to the joy set before him. And in that joy. It says he was determined. To go to Jerusalem. Point number one. Point number one. Our Messiah is resolute. In his convictions. Because he knows his purpose. Our Messiah is resolute in his convictions because he knows his purpose. The one whom we are to imitate is resolute in his convictions because he knows his purpose. Jesus knows why he is here. The word for determine means to set or strengthen your face. Like you can imagine like clenching your face as you just zero in on something. That was the idea. I believe the ESV actually has a better translation as it says he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. The pathway to glory was through Jerusalem. The pathway to glory was through suffering. And Jesus was going to fix his face or set his face to go. The idea is that this is an unwavering determination. An unwavering determination or conviction. A conviction to go to Jerusalem to fulfill his purpose. To despise the shame. To enter into suffering and to enter into whatever may come. He says, I will go through whatever I have to go through. I will go through whatever I have to go through so long as I fulfill my purpose. I will save my sheep, no matter what it takes, unto the glory of God. Unto the glory of God, unto the praise of my name forever and ever. In fact, Luke gets this phrase uh, from the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 50. In Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 7, it was written maybe 700 almost 800 years before Luke was ever written. It's a prophecy about a suffering servant. It says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Listen to these words about your Messiah. Listen to these words about Jesus. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike. I gave my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. And I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore I have not been disgraced. I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Like a hard, unwavering rock of a face that cannot be changed or moved or deterred or swayed, he's focused, he's determined, and he's ready to go to the cross to despise the shame for you, for me. Jesus was absolutely resolute. He was absolutely resolute and full of conviction to now transition his ministry from one of here I am to one of here I go. He's got a few months left. He's heading to Jerusalem, which means that our teacher is on mission. Our teacher, the one whom we say we follow, He's on mission. Jesus is setting the example and he's showing us the heart and mind that we are to follow as his disciples. How are we to think about your life? How are we to think about our life? Does it belong to you or does it belong to him? How should we therefore follow? These are the questions that we must continuously ask ourselves every day. Jesus is saying with this hard Rock of a face, he's saying, I'm on mission. I'm on mission, and I'm not here to merely meet the felt needs of the human race, but I'm on mission, as he says later in Luke 19, I'm on mission to seek and to save. I'm on mission to seek and to save, to show mercy. I'm on a mission of mercy. I'm here to offer my life and my body and my blood and my suffering for your atonement. For your atonement, to make you righteous. To give you something you could never earn. To give you something you don't deserve. And to remove from you the wrath of God that you do deserve. I'm setting my face like a flint to go to my death. And nothing will stop me from doing it. Nothing. That is your Lord. That is your Savior. A mighty, awesome, humble, determined, focused God. As his disciples, we are to look to Jesus. We're to look to him. Jesus set the example and the vision. Think about this. He set the, the vision of what a life that glorifies the Father looks like. This is what it looks like to glorify the Father. Jesus is showing us the example. We exist to glorify God. You want to know how? Jesus shows the way. Jesus is showing the way. Namely, He has a life dedicated and on mission to do what He knows He has been incarnated to do. We at CBC, we seek to be a people on mission, to be like our Savior this sermon our weekly bible studies our prayer groups our communing with one another our praying for one another all of these things that we call equipping they're not equipping us to just have head knowledge they're not equipping us just to be able to win a spiritual debate with somebody they're not equipping us to just be able to quote book chapter verse to people and that's it no no It's all an equipping aspect of this body to send us out on mission as the local body to be reaching the the local area, the Kennesaw, Ackworth, and the nations. Do Do you at all feel called to go to your neighbor's house? Do you feel called to go to be like your savior into the local neighborhoods, no matter how dangerous it might be? Do you feel called to go to Liberia Do you feel called to go anywhere that the Lord is calling you? I say this to stir up the affections of those whom God may be calling and you're not listening. Maybe he's calling you and you're not listening. I want you to hear his call. But this equipping that we do on Sunday mornings and in Bible studies is designed to help us to fight sin and live for His mission that still continues even into today. It wasn't just a mission that ended at His resurrection. It continues. It continues with His church. And so it's my desire, it's my hope, it's my prayer that each and every single person in this room and on the live stream that calls themselves a member of this body as his disciples, that we would be a people who are defined by the heart of our Savior. If we are defined by the heart of our Savior, then we are to be a people on mission. Now, of course, his disciples, early in their sanctification, they had a wrong view of the Jesus' of Jesus's mission. They had a wrong view of Jesus' mission, and therefore, they had a wrong view of their discipleship. May we not make the same mistakes. Look at verse 52 through 55. It says, He sent a messenger on ahead of him. So he set his face towards Jerusalem. He's leaving his Galilean mission. He's going towards Jerusalem. And the says, he's, They sent messengers on ahead of him. And they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. And when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, he wanted us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, but he turned and rebuked them and said, you don't know what kind of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them, and then they went on to another village, and so Jesus sends messengers. He sends messengers out, and he's really kind of further demonstrating that he's impartial, because where's the first place he goes? village of the Samaritans, to which almost every Jewish disciple along with them probably would have felt angst from that. Like, why are you going there first? That doesn't make any sense. They're probably not getting it if that's the case. But he sends them to this village, and again, this was an invitation, because he's heading to Jerusalem, so every, every place they stopped, there was an invitation to receive the gospel. It was an invitation to receive the Messiah. And so this was an invitation for the dogs, as they would have called them. This was an invitation for the dogs, as they were seen, to receive the Messiah. To which the Samaritans, they didn't receive him. It says they did not receive him. So we see a people not receive the one to whom he has sent. So we see kind of a, a negative view of verse 48 played out here. Right? Those who receive you receive me, and now I'm sending you, and someone's not receiving you. So Jesus sends messengers, and they are not received, but the text says they did not receive Jesus, and so it's played out. They refused the message of the Messiah. They refused the message of the Messiah because they had had issues with the idea of him going to Jerusalem. So they had issues because Samaritans believed that there was some mountain that they were supposed to worship on other than Jerusalem, and they didn't like the idea of Messiah setting up his kingdom in Jerusalem. So they couldn't believe that that was the right Messiah. But they had it wrong. They had it wrong. And this rejection, has set the sons of thunder kind of into a tailspin. Right? Jesus calls these guys the sons of thunder earlier on in the book of Mark. Uh, it's not really a rage as I see it. It's not really a rage, but again, it's kind of a, a lifting themselves up as judge. Right, they're seeing Jesus going to Jerusalem. He's going to set up his kingdom. And so, of course, he's going to set us up as judges right, with him. The, to his disciples, they had a wrong view of his mission. To them, this trip to Jerusalem was just a trip to Palm Sunday. This was a trip to Palm Sunday, a trip to receive praise, honor, glory, And for Jesus to set himself up and them as rulers of Israel. And so they were ready to bring the thunder to anyone who rejected it. They were ready to bring judgment down for anyone who would reject this kingdom being established. And their rule being beginning. So they had the wrong idea. Wrong view of Jesus' mission leads to a wrong view of discipleship. Wrong actions. See, Jesus' face was like a flint. His conviction was not to destroy. His conviction was to get to Jerusalem and be destroyed. To be leased, to, be, to serve. To be treated not as a king, but as a criminal, which is less than a child. John 12, 47, which is basically... Uh, helping us understand that this bracketed text is actually, even though it may not be in the original manuscripts, it's a good exegete. It's a good understanding of what Jesus's heart was, and even though we don't really think that the brackets are authoritative, they are in John twelve forty seven, right? In John twelve forty seven, it says that Jesus did not come to judge now, but he absolutely will in the last day. So he's going to come, and he is going to judge, but now is not the time for judgment. Jesus alone will judge at the right time, and so Jesus points them to his earlier instructions in verse five of this very chapter, which is when they reject you, what are you supposed to do? Dust, them, dust, dust your feet off and move on to the next village. So that's exactly what they did, and that's exactly what he did by example, with clear focus again on his mission. Now, in the next few verses, in the next few verses, we get into these three encounters. And what it is, what, what these three encounters are, is, is Luke taking a moment here to kind of insert a lesson. Luke is taking a moment to insert a lesson. This is, he's, he's kind of stepping out of the chronolo- chronological order here. We know from Matthew that these, uh, these three, or there's two accounts in Matthew, but these happen at a different time point. He's happened at a different time point, and Luke will do this sometimes. So he'll take things out of chronological order and place them into a text to help us understand the lesson that he's teaching in the actual chronology of the story. Okay? Jesus has been teaching his disciples what it means to be a disciple, what it means to follow him. and So here's a learning moment for him and his disciples and for us. As Jesus gets approached, and he approaches a few would-be disciples. And so they encounter three would-be or possible disciples, and Jesus will show them and us what he expects from anyone who says, I will follow you. So this gets all the way back to the introduction. What does it mean? What does Jesus demand of those who say, I will follow you, Jesus? I'm with you, Jesus. What does he say? So we see three encounters here in Luke, two of which, again, are recorded in Matthew. We'll be looking at the questions of what is the cost of discipleship? What is the cost of discipleship? What is the cost, again, of being like Jesus? Well, the first approaches Jesus. The first approaches him, and he says, I will follow you wherever you go. I will follow you wherever you go. And in Matthew, in the account of Matthew, we see that this person was actually a scribe. He was a scribe. He was a a lifted-up religious leader, like a lawyer. One of the... Kind of on par with the pharisees and they scribes led a pretty cushy life right they led a pretty cushy life there wasn't a lot of conflict not a lot of people willing to disagree with them right they knew the law no one's going to argue with them no one's going to argue with them and they're not really used to suffering but more like the pursuit of comfort that was the life of a scribe and so the scribe comes to jesus and most likely as we see in the in the matthew account He's kind of in a big emotional state. He's just seen Jesus perform a lot of really amazing miracles. So he's kind of worked up a bit. He's worked up, and so he, he comes to Jesus and says, I'll follow you. I'll follow you wherever you go. I'll be your pupil. Teach me. Galilean teacher. To which Jesus says, okay, say this prayer. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. That's not Jesus' evangelism model. He doesn't take somebody who's in a hyper-emotional state and say, okay, do you believe you're a sinner? Say this prayer. Did you mean it? Okay, now write your name and the date in the book and shut it. You're saved. Now go live your life. No, he doesn't say that. Jesus does not called this man to merely say a prayer or make a decision. He calls the man to count the cost. You ever said that to somebody who said, How do you get saved? What is this whole gospel message? You share the gospel and then say, by the way, it's costly to follow Jesus. Is that your evangelism model? Is Jesus is here? He, he tells the man to count the cost. He basically tells the guy that every single thing that I have ever made has a place to go to bed at night. But the creator of all things has nowhere to lay his head. You want to follow me? You want to follow me? Are you sure? Which brings me to point two. is that being like Jesus, being like Jesus means embracing difficulty. Embracing a life of difficulty. This lesson. This lesson that we just kind of keep running into of self-denial, self-hate, self-abasement, killing of pride. We're not going to escape this anytime soon as we go through this book. We're not likely to get away from this theme anytime soon. And so, again, if you hear anyone up here kind of repeating that message, it's not our fault. Jesus just keeps bringing it up. Jesus is the one, your Messiah is the one who keeps bringing it up. The call to discipleship is not to receive Jesus as a rocky soil does, as rocky soil in the the moment of emotionalism, and then to bail when things get hard. Why? Because things will get hard. Things will get difficult. On the other side of this, though, Jesus is not saying that you must borrow everything and be a nomad and be homeless. We shouldn't take it to that extreme either. He is saying, though, that the road behind me is difficult. The road that I'm going down is difficult. And if you can't fathom a life of difficulty and stress and hardships, then maybe this isn't the life for you. It's not a life of comfort and ease and prosperity. It's going to be difficult. And he knew the heart of this scribe, just like he knew the heart of the rich young ruler. He knew the heart of the scribe. See, the scribe was willing to quit being a scribe. He was willing to be a pupil, to be a learner. But Jesus is saying, I don't want you to just learn. I want you to follow. I want you to follow. Jesus warns him of the life that he is choosing. And knowing the heart of this scribe and the heart of all men and our desires for comfort and ease, Jesus is saying, are you sure? Are you sure you want to follow me? It goes against everything that you're for. Are you sure? This again boils down to self-denial in regards to personal comfort. We must not cling. We must not cling to the comforts of this world if we want to follow Christ. I'm not saying we can't have things, but we hold them with open hands saying, God, I want to follow you And if that means you must take it all, then do it. It's not worth having if I don't have you. But if you let me have it, then make sure I use it for your name. Make sure I use it for your glory. It's not about having or not having. It's about holding with open hands. And saying it all belongs to you. And so our evangelism should look to the same. Our evangelism should look the same. Again, Jesus does not capitalize on the man's emotions. Rather, he tells him to consider the cost and set out, before he sets out to, quote, build a house. Right? Before he sets out to, quote, build a house, lest he run out of money and not be able to finish. This is, again, what he says later in Luke 14. 14, 14.28, he says, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it, Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Does that just wash off of your back? Does that go in one ear and out the other? Does that, do you just say, He doesn't really mean that. He does. He does, and it's hard to hear. But anyone of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Point three. Point three. Being like Jesus means being like Jesus means now is the time. Now is the time for kingdom over everything. Now is the time for kingdom over everything. So Jesus then turns to a would-be disciple and says, follow me. The very words of God calling a man to follow. And the man's response, okay, Lord, but permit me first to go and bury my father. Permit me first to go and bury my father. Now, we must know that this response, it appears very noble at first. It appears very noble. It seems like, okay, yeah, Jesus, let him go bury his dad. But this is not as noble as it first appears because his father's, this man's father was not dead. In Jewish tradition, if a, somebody died, they buried on the on the first day. They buried that day. So if his father was dead, he wouldn't be there with Jesus. He wouldn't be there. The son had no familial obligation, but rather he was concerned with his inheritance. He was concerned with his inheritance and so the father was not dead it was not out of an honor or it's not out of honor or family obligation but when the God of all called him to follow the word landed on a thorny heart. The word landed on a thorny heart. I just heard you say that you were homeless Jesus. I heard you say you don't really have a place to sleep and I want to follow you but I should probably get my financials in order first because I ain't about being homeless. Maybe I should get my stuff together first. Right? Concerned like, just like the thorny hearts, concerned only with the cares of this life, with the riches of this life and the comforts and the cares of this world. He felt the need to secure his financial situation before going on this very risky adventure of following Jesus. And I don't know about you, but that hits close to home. That hits close to home. How many of us are waiting? Are waiting to follow Jesus the way we know we're supposed to? You know, I wait. I'll get to my retirement years, and then I'll follow Jesus. Then I'll go talk to my neighbor. Then I'll take risks. Let me get my bank account right first. Let me get my career right first. You know, really focus on my career, get my funds together, and then I'll be risky. That's not risky. Then I'll be ready to follow. That's the heart. That's the heart to which Jesus says to him and us, let the dead bury the dead. Let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, he gives instructions As for you, go everywhere and do what? Proclaim the kingdom. Go everywhere and proclaim the kingdom, indicating that this disciple's motives were not pure, but rather the motives of a spiritually dead person, because the dead, the spiritually dead, are focused on the temporal. They're focused on the temporal. The dead are focused on the short term and the temporal life and making it as comfortable and as easy as possible so let the spiritual dead deal with death you you go proclaim life because you are about life not death you go proclaim life the living are concerned with the eternal the living are concerned with the kingdom the living are concerned with salvation of others They're concerned with the eternal matters, the forever things. And so to be like Jesus is to forsake the temporal and seek the eternal, not tomorrow, not in their retirement years, not after you get your stuff together, but now, today. Not when things seem right, but right now. The kingdom of God Therefore, it's to be at the center of your desires, just like it was for Jesus. It's to be the center of your motives, just like for Jesus. It's to be the center of your thoughts, your work, your life. And therefore, in that, you're going to be calling others into that kingdom naturally. It's just going to naturally follow. Jesus is saying, preach the gospel. Proclaim the kingdom. Be about the gospel. Be about the kingdom. It's the same thing. And when you think about it, what a calling. When you really meditate on these things and who Jesus was and what he's called you to do, what a fantastic calling. We get get to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, and we get to proclaim a kingdom that will never, ever, ever fade. We get to call people out of a kingdom that will burn tomorrow and into a kingdom that will last forever. Isn't that... Something worth dying for? Giving your life up for? Because it means we don't need this earthly kingdom. We don't need this earthly kingdom, our earthly inheritance, because we have a greater one. We have a bigger one. And if we really just believed that, if we really believed how great our inheritance to come would be and is, we would, without hesitation, drop our net. We would, without hesitation, drop our nets and follow Jesus anywhere. And I mean anywhere he would ask you to go. Wouldn't you? Jesus is not asking for apathetic, half-hearted disciples. He demands full devotion. He demands full devotion. And lastly... We have an encounter with a man who says, I will follow you, Lord, but. I will follow you, Lord, but. Now, anyone in here has ever been apologized to with, I'm sorry, but. You kind of know how Jesus feels right now. So point four is this, that to be like Jesus. To be like Jesus is to have a face like a flint toward the kingdom. Forward, not backwards. This would-be disciple says, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to go and say goodbye to my family. Again, seems reasonable. Let me go say goodbye to my family. You know, many have actually read this and they have tried to support the idea of husbands putting ministry over family. That would be the wrong idea. That would be absolutely uh, antithetical to scripture antithetical to the heart of Jesus. That is not what this is saying. There would be absolute disobedience to say that ministry is not my family, but ministry is this. That would be wrong. This man, this man though, was either afraid to be disowned by his parents. This is a different family dynamic. This man was either afraid to be disowned by his parents and siblings who would not agree with following Jesus, so he's worried about their, his relationship with them if he were to follow Jesus. Or perhaps, perhaps he wanted to go get some financial support for his long journey, for his next adventure. Or maybe he was just simply just kind of concerned with the interests of his family and kind of wants to run things by them first. Let I me mean, kind of smooth things over with them. Make sure they they get it and they understand that I'm going to go follow this Messiah guy named Jesus. He does miracles and he's cool and he you know he's he says he's going to you know set up a kingdom. And I think I'm going to go with him. What do you think? I want to run things by them first. Jesus calls this looking backwards. He calls this looking backwards. He says he says this. No one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit or usable or suitable. For the kingdom of God. Wow. We talked about this a few weeks ago. But again, Jesus is saying that you must love me over family. You must love me more than family. You should love me so much that in comparison it looks like hate. Your love for your family would look like hate in comparison. Jesus said that a time is coming when brother will deliver brother over to death And then I came to put mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and so on and so on. And so the question is, is, is your heart with your unbelieving family or is your heart with me? Is your heart tied to the interests of your family or to the kingdom? You cannot pursue the kingdom and look back at your old life. You see, your old life is filled with all kinds of things. And to follow me means it may cost you your possessions, your comfort, and your relationships even. It may even cost you your relationships. And anyone who looks back to any of those former things, Jesus says, is useless. Useless in the kingdom. Like Lot's wife, who upon leaving Sodom looked back because it says her heart was in Sodom. That's where her heart was. She did not want to leave. So she looked back. So this is not about leaving your family or disowning your family but it is about the pursuit of the kingdom. It is about the pursuit of the kingdom, even if your family will hate you for it, even if your friends will hate you for it, even if your boss will hate you for it. It's a, it's a very radical calling. It is a very radical calling. And again, I'm asking tough questions, but are we willing to suffer the loss of this kingdom and this worldly life and our own dreams, knowing that he has prepared for you a better one? He has prepared for you and me and us and this body a better kingdom. Again, Christianity is not about making a decision for Christ. It is about following Christ, following the one who paid it all for you. If we are to be his disciples, then we must desire to be like him. We must desire to be like him. We must adopt his heart and his mission. And hear me on this. We must set our face like a flint toward the kingdom of God. And set our minds towards the advancement of the kingdom of God and the advancement of kingdom citizens, which means we must be about the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what we must be about. This is what Paul was about. He said in Philippians 3, he said, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it, but one thing I do, what does he do? Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. This was Paul's heart. He was bought in. So following Christ, again, is not merely a mental exercise, but it is first a recognition of who Jesus is. It is a recognition of who Jesus is and what he is about. And then in your love for him, In your love for him and in your new heart that he gives you, that he purchased for you on the cross, Jesus demands that you follow him and be about what he is about. Not to earn your salvation, but in your salvation, follow him. He is God. He is God, and he is about the kingdom of God. All of his heart, all of his thoughts, all of his actions are all wrapped up in the kingdom and anyone who would say, I will follow you, Lord, should be growing in the same desires. We should be growing in the same centrality that he had. I'll close today with a quote from Spurgeon. Just so listen to this quote. My great object is to lead you to love him who so loved you that he set his face like a flint in his determination to save you, Oh, you redeemed ones on, those, on whose behalf this strong resolve was made. You, who have been bought by the precious blood of this steadfast, resolute Redeemer, come and think a while of him, that your hearts may burn within you, and that your face may be set like flints to live and die for him who lived and died for you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, these are weighty matters. And it is a tough calling. But your expectations are no less. And where you expect us, Lord, what you expect of us, you supply the grace. Help us to remember, Lord, that in your expectations, you also say, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I am with you always, even into the end of the age. And so, Lord, we are not alone. And we could never possibly do this alone. Only by your strength and only by your grace and only by the work of your spirit can our hearts change to love the kingdom and the future and the eternal things more than the temporal. We are fleshly creatures, God. We love the here and now, but give us eternal minds, God. Put us, God, on our knees before you that we may pray that you would give us a heart on mission, to be on mission. Let us pray and plead with you until you do it. And let us never give up in our perseverance of praying and asking and pleading for the Spirit to give us this heart, the heart of our Messiah, our Savior. Do this in us, in this body, in every individual person in this room and on the live cast. And at home, do this in our hearts, oh God. Amen. Again, we come to communion because we celebrate. We celebrate the fact that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, and with unwavering conviction in perseverance, he went to the cross where he paid for every wretched thing we've ever thought, ever done, ever said, every heart emotion that was sinful. He says, I paid for that. And for anyone who wants to accuse you, if you are in Christ, there we have an accuser. And he's accusing you right now because of something you did this morning or yesterday or a week ago. And Jesus is our advocate and he says, no, he's mine. He's mine. I bought him with my blood. And that's what we celebrate right now. As we come to the table, remember that you are bought, purchased, wrath satisfied forever nothing you could ever do to make God love you more than he does right now come and celebrate we will take the bread and the cup and disperse around the room everyone come and gather the bread and cup and then we'll take together